Hear the word of our God. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. This is the word of Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we do pray that it would it would rest upon our hearts not only with certainty at its historicity, but also deeply that you would, with this certainty, bring to us hearts longing to exalt and praise with the angels. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ was born to a a lowly Hebrew maid from a despised region, as we saw earlier this month. He was born in a despised place because there was neither hospitality nor a rental available for him. And so perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that the the first people to whom the birth announcement is given are also despised people, a, a lowly class in Israel, I always find this a little surprising because we read the Old Testament and here's David, the shepherd king of Israel, and every Israelite longs for another king like David who was the shepherd king of Israel. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then we find that by the time Christ comes, no matter how much they may love that psalm of David, shepherds are despised. <laughs> That makes no sense to me, but isn't that how we are? We, we take the things that our theology says we should uh, uphold and, and see in the wonderful light of the gospel, and we say, oh, those people, that person, that thing. Here are these shepherds, they're the despised, lowly class, 
And these, perhaps, especially despised ones, they seem to have uh, drawn the short straw. They got the night shift. They're not even the guys who get to come in at 9 a.m. with the uh, thermos of warm coffee and enjoy the day. They have to be there at night when the wolves and the bears and the lions are all out wanting to devour the flocks. These are a despised people. Uh, I hope to have us look more at these shepherds on Christmas Eve. Uh, I'm, I'm going to hopefully not make a mistake this morning by doing this, but I, I want us to think this morning about the angels first, and then, Lord willing, on Saturday, come back and, and consider together the, sh- the shepherds and especially their response to this birth announcement. But here we do have the, the birth announcement. And not only a birth announcement, but with the birth announcement comes uh, a celebration. We, we tend to send out birth announcements, maybe it's a little postcard. Or, or if you're lazy like me, maybe you didn't even send something like that out. But you know, a lot of parents send out the nice little birth card with the cute pictures. So-and-so showed up. And, uh, but most of us don't send an entire group of friends over to everyone's house to join in the celebration. Trish opens the door and 30 people are standing there and here, here's the birth announcement and all these people pop out of the bushes and start singing happy birthday to the, the baby. It, that usually doesn't happen for us. That's what we find, I'm not trying to belittle the text, but that's what we find from the angels. An angel comes, here's the birth announcement, and then the party shows up with the angel. But it's a a reverent party. It is worship. A celebration in the form of adoration. So I want to think about the announcement this morning. I want to think about the the celebration a little bit this morning. But with a a special desire that it, it causes our hearts to long to truly worship. And to think a little bit about what the implications from these angels might be for true worship. And so first we, we think about this birth announcement. We, we find the shepherds, uh, suddenly a, a messenger appears to them. Now, occasionally in scripture, uh, an angel will appear like a man. And people don't really know what the angel is, but that's certainly not the case here. This angel appears and the glory of God appears with him. I think the implication is that the the angel himself reflects the glory of God. And there are a couple of ways that we could cause ourselves to reflect on that. We could read something like Ezekiel chapter 1, where uh, Ezekiel describes What's that off in the distance? And suddenly it's there in front of him like lightning. These angels appear that are so glorious and majestic and terrifying that Ezekiel trembles. And there the angels are just the guys who are carrying the throne or, or the, like the cattle, the, the horses pulling the chariot for the one who's truly glorious. Or we could also think about Moses here. Remember, when Moses wanted to see the glory of God, God says, if I I do that, you're dead. But I'll hide you in a cave. 
and I'll shade, I'll shade over the cave, and then I'll just pass by, and you'll see the backside of me, which is an anthropomorphic way of God saying, I'm just going to show you a tiny little bit, the smallest ounce of my glory. And remember what the outcome of that was? Moses hiding in the cave, seeing the smallest little speck of the glory of God goes down the mountain and the people tremble. They can't look at his face because it's shining and he has to put a veil over it so that they can't see his face. Imagine then an angel who stands in the throne room of God day and night and has just appeared before you to give a message. What reflected glory would be there. You know, we we have the moon, and on a clear night when it's a full moon, you you can take a walk by the light of the moon. But we actually know that's that's actually not a true statement, technically, scientifically, because the moon doesn't have any light. It's just the reflection, the dimmest reflection off of the moon of of what is not seen by us, the sun. And here are these angels at night, and they get the dimmest reflection of the glory of God on his throne, reflecting off this angel. And see what the result is? The angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Yeah, Uh, you bet. I know I quoted this just a few weeks ago. I think it's so brilliantly phrased. The late R.C. Sproul's my favorite quote by him, probably the only one I've ever quoted in worship. I quoted at least once a year that the holiness of God is traumatic. For unholy people. And here the holiness of God reflecting just a little speck of it off this messenger, and they are greatly afraid. Isaiah was afraid too, remember, when in a vision he stood in the throne room and he said, Woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. I've spoken sinful things. And I'm of a people of unclean lips. In Revelation we read that none was worthy. None was holy enough. And worthy enough to open the scroll. And did you notice who makes that announcement? The text goes out of its way to make this point. We read a strong angel. The angels are in heaven are sinless. They've never sinned. And from among the sinless angels, this is a strong one. And he said, who's worthy? And no one says, well, you are, of course. But there is one who is worthy to open that scroll. 
And it's his holiness and his glory that reflect off of this angel now. Well, I was reflecting then this week on this fact, and I was thinking about pagan mythology. Um, I, I enjoy reading pagan theology. It, it's laughable, but it, it can also be interesting. And uh, sometimes I read things like the sagas of the Icelanders. And I was reflecting on, in, in my memory, which isn't perfect, but I can't think of a single place in Greek or Roman or Icelandic or Norse or uh, whatever mythology, Egyptian mythology, I've read the Book of the Dead or whatever that is. And I can't re- remember any of these places where one of the, the gods or one of their messengers came to humanity and the, the human was trembling and there was sympathy for that human. It, usually what you find is, here's this groveling human and there's this almost this glee, this scorn for the puny human. The one living and true God sends his messenger to these shepherds. And he has sympathy for their weakness. He doesn't deliver the message while they grovel on the ground. He he says, I want you to be able to hear this message. It's a message. Let me preamble it by saying it's a message that will remove your need to tremble. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The angel does not say do not be afraid because well, you have no reason to be afraid. God loves you. You're a wonderful You're a wonderful person, just the way you are. And God is a God of love, which, of course, we all know means he loves whatever it is you love. And he loves you to be whatever it is you want to be. So why would you be afraid? No, the angel doesn't say that. He says, do not tremble. Because the very God before whom you should rightly tremble has become a man, your brother, to save you from your sins. Well, he doesn't use those words, does he? But that's what the angel says. He doesn't say you have no need to tremble. He says, despite the reason you have for trembling, don't. I bring you good news from God. Here is the offended king offering terms of pardon and reconciliation. And and the shepherds, who no doubt were very confused by much of what was said here, and, and didn't have a full Nicene Creed understanding of these words, nonetheless would have, would have at least understood the, these pieces of it, of what I've just said, because of the language and their knowledge of the scriptures. We, we find that this takes place in the city of David, and immediately their thoughts would have raced to the prophets 
Micah and others, especially these shepherds who are outside of Bethlehem, who are probably of the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of David, from the hometown of David. No doubt they would have reflected quickly upon Micah. You, Bethlehem, are not least, for out of you will come the shepherd king. That's a paraphrase, of course. But when they hear city of David, oh, the the covenant promises of God revealed through the prophets of old. God is going to fulfill his promises. That's good news. This is what the angels' words, no doubt, would reflect very quickly upon these shepherds. And if they missed it with the location, they would have caught it with the, the titles. For to you is born in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. A similar word in Hebrew is used in one of the books. The book of Judges. Whenever you hear this idea of God sent so and so as a judge as a savior, as a redeemer. To you is born a redeemer. Maybe to their Hebrew ears, they even would have thought of that. Oh, long ago, there was oppression under this this foreign power, Philistia, and God raised up Samson. And now, oh, so many years have passed, but now the angel is telling us God is raising up one who will, like that, save us. who is Christ, Christ the Lord, Christ. We so easily think of as a last name. Jesus is the first name, Christ is the last name. Of course, it's okay to think of that now because he's the only one with the title Christ. But that was a title, it wasn't his last name. Christ is a title, Christ is... The, the same word, we could translate it as Messiah. That's the word. Messiah, which in the Hebrew simply means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, those who God used to save his people, and yes, to mediate between himself and sinners. These were the anointed ones, prophets, priests, kings, judges. A Messiah. But of course, in the prophets, that word took on a very unique significance in the later prophets. They ceased talking about generically Messiahs, anointed ones. And they talked about the one. You can read in Daniel, amongst all of the difficult things of the prophecy, there are these amazing visions of the one, the anointed one the Son of Man. Or you can read in Isaiah of the one, the servant of the Lord, who's anointed, and he's anointed for a purpose, and he's going to do certain things. And so these shepherds have, have that knowledge before them when they worship in the synagogues. They're reading of, of one to come, the Christ. Here he is. But here's the astonishing thing. 
The one born is Christ the Lord. And the Hebrews were very insistent. Caesar claimed Lord as a title. And the Hebrews were so insistent, they got special permission in all of the Roman Empire. They had the exception to not have to refer to him as Lord. Why? Because for the Hebrew, in this time, in that place, Lord was God. And the angel says to these Hebrews, born is the Messiah who is God. Again, they probably were a bit baffled and didn't have a full-blown Nicene Creed prepared by the end of the evening. But they would have known this is an astonishing thing. A celebration of a birth announcement for not just any ordinary Israelite, not just any ordinary son of David. If you're an unbeliever here today, I pray that the message of the angel gives you a joyful response, peace in your heart. But it starts with an acknowledgement that things are not right between you and God. That there is sin. Otherwise, there's no reason to especially celebrate a Savior, a Messiah who has come. So even before these words, do not be afraid, can be real in your heart because of the peace of God. A confession of sin has to come so that you see your need for him. We who ought to be terrified before the holy God of the universe are told not to be afraid, for God has come to save us from our bondage. Good news. And as soon as the birth announcement is delivered, then suddenly a whole host of angels appears. Reflect on hosts. In Revelation, we're reading thousands upon thousands. Well, we're not saying it's all of them, but a host, an army of angels. They suddenly appear. And what do they do? They burst into confession. And they burst into song. They burst into adoration and worship. The birthday celebration for Christ, which the angels bring with the messenger, is a worshiping celebration. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. Why does glory go to God in the highest? There are so many reasons, aren't there? We, we saw in Revelation chapter 4 in the call to worship, glory goes to God in the highest because he created all things and holds all things together. But here the emphasis seems to be on his redemption. Even as we saw in Revelation chapter 6, because you shed your blood, lamb. You were slain. 
and have purchased us for God. Here, before Christ ever goes to the cross, the angels are declaring the same thing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. That is, God is reconciling rebels. God is offering terms of peace to rebels. And the peace isn't like so many pagans in ages past. The the pagan king conquers another country. And if you want peace with me without more bloodshed, first all the men's right arms have to be cut off. Or uh, every right eye needs to be plucked out. Or your firstborn sons must be given to me uh, as my slaves. Those are quite common things. Just go and read history. But here the God of the universe against whom all have rebelled offers different, different treaty of peace. And the offer is, my son, for your peace, believe and repent. Astonishing. And the angels, they celebrate this. I wonder if you've really reflected on how amazing it is that the angels celebrate like this. These are holy angels. They've never sinned. Unlike mankind. These are holy angels whose brethren, when they sinned, were cast out of heaven. And for them, there is no salvation offered. In the beginning, when they had been created by God, these angels served alongside. They had brethren who with them served God. But a third of them fell. And for that third, there is no cross. There is no do not be afraid. There is only eternal fire prepared for them. Now, if the situation were reversed and angels received salvation and you and I with our sinful hearts knew we were not going to receive salvation or, or our family members who sinned and fell were not going to receive salvation, how would we respond to the knowledge that angels were going to? Wouldn't we say that's not fair? It's not fair. It's not fair that I, a sinner, will never experience hell while some angel who fell is going to experience hell. That's not fair. It's grace. Fair would be me burning with those angels. It's grace. It's mercy. It's God's extension of peace. And the angels celebrate it. They've never sinned, so jealousy 
doesn't come into the equation for them, but it's still something to marvel at, isn't it? Their brethren will not be saved. But they celebrate that we are. And they worship God for it. What a thing. What a thing. What a challenge to us to perhaps care a little bit more when we hear of someone's conversion. The angels celebrate it, even though their brethren will never be saved. Or another thing marvelous about this is the fact that they, they personally have never experienced it. They don't have experiential knowledge of God's offer of peace. They didn't need it. They didn't fall in the beginning by his grace. He sustained them and they remained faithful, these holy angels. But nonetheless, they, they don't fully understand it experientially. Remember that the New Testament says that this is something into which they long to look, indicating a, a confusion over it. They don't fully get it. but they celebrate it anyway. That's amazing. Sometimes the things that are mysterious to us are hard for us to celebrate about our God. I don't understand the Trinity. Well, then how am I supposed to celebrate the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, we are. The Spirit with the Son and the Father is eternally eternally to be worshipped and adored, even though we don't fully understand. We long to look into this. We, We don't fully understand it. That's hard for us. The angels don't have the experiential knowledge of salvation, and yet they celebrate it anyway. Even as they long to look into it, what they do know, they celebrate Well, Lord willing, we'll look at the, how the shepherds respond to all of that on Christmas Eve. But I, I want to challenge us this morning, challenge our response. When we hear that Christ is born of Mary, laid in a manger, that he came to shed his blood for our sins, How do we respond? Examine your worship as we think about the angelic worship. And when I say this, I I mean your worship. I, I want you to examine your heart, not try to examine the heart of the person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you or standing at the pulpit. Uh, But, but your own heart, let each of us, seek to do that. We'll think about the the shepherd's response and how that challenges us on Saturday, Lord willing. But here, I want us to think about our worship as it is. And I, I want to think about it under three thoughts. What we spurn, what we gain, and what we give. What we spurn. Not all of you are spurning it. What we spurn when we don't worship sincerely and with great joy. 
What are we spurning? What are you spurning if you're here as an unbeliever? And it's just all outward facade and whitewash. It's all traditionalism or it's all emotionalism or all somethingism and not from a faith-filled and repentant and joyful heart. What are we spurning? As we look at the angelic worship, maybe it exposes our feeble worship. If this is what looking at the angelic chorus reveals to you that your worship is is uh, all outward, then then examine whether you have faith at all. It could be you do that you're a true believer and that you've grown calloused and apathetic, that you are sliding backwards without even really knowing it, that you are growing lukewarm so that Christ no longer enjoys the the temperature of you and you need to repent and seek that first love again even in your worship our worship ought to be a gauge for us of our whole life So you could be a believer or, or it could be you've never had true faith at all. And I can't assess that on any of you. I, I think from what I can see that all of you whose faces I'm looking at this morning, uh, especially those of you old enough to talk, I, I've heard true confession from, but I'm not omniscient. So as we look at the angels, examine your heart. And if, if you are not worshiping sincerely and by faith, realize that you are spurning the gracious pardon of God. If you're a true believer, you're currently spurning His, His Spirit's continued work of sanctification in you and His loving work within you and presence with you today. If you're a non-Christian, you're spurning the pardon altogether. And what a thing to spurn. The God of the universe saying, I will have mercy. I will have mercy. Come to me and receive it. What a thing to spurn. Think also about what we gain. What we gain with true worship there are a lot of ways there are whole books I I could uh, tomes of material I could put before you this morning on what we gain in true worship sincere faith filled worship Uh, obviously I'm not going to do that to you this morning but think about what we gain we gain access into the holy of holies We gain in worship together, fellowship, not only with the the body of Christ, fellow believers, but, but vertically we gain fellowship in that moment in a special way with God in his throne room. 
Now, now, as a believer, a sincere believer, you are united to Christ every moment of every day. But God in Scripture also makes clear there's something special going on. It's a, it's a, special, it's a special moment of fellowship when His people come together by faith and come into His presence. There's a, a union between a monarch and their subjects in one sense always. But there's a special thing when you're given, my mind is <laughs> blanking in this moment, an audience, that's the word, an, an audience with your monarch. And if you're granted that audience and the monarch actually says, call me father. And I will call you daughter. I will call you son. What a thing. You go back out knowing that. It changes how you live. But there's still that special thing of when you had the audience. We are given something special. It's something we gain access into heaven itself. And I think with that, an anticipation, a reminder, a promise. That one day we don't have to leave the audience chamber. This week I, w- I was reading a, an article by J.C. Ryle on worship, an essay, and, and he was reminding me of so much of what is hard about worship here and what we gain when we come by faith to worship. Here we have weariness. Maybe you just didn't sleep last night. Maybe you're a broken person. We have weakness of various types. Maybe these chairs are hard on your back. (laughs) I'm thankful I get to stand up. Not the nicest chairs ever. Not the worst chairs ever either. But not the softest chairs ever. Or maybe some other weakness. We have infirmities in our bodies. We worship now with many shadows to dim the glory of the Lord. Seen now as through a glass dimly. Even when we come to worship, we don't really see the glory as it is, which we have when we come by faith in Christ. We find joy in worship sometimes hard, for for we're surrounded by loss and sorrow, or as Ryle puts it, crushed hopes. You've all had hopes crushed, haven't you? And it can affect your worship now. And just the cares of the world, a burden on you. But one day, one day you'll enter the throne room never to leave it and all these things will be no more. They will have passed away. They have, will have been wiped from your eyes They will be uh, removed, removed from the room and from the universe. One day, hope deferred will be the complete, the complete experience of you.
hope deferred no longer. When we gather together in worship, we are not only experiencing the audience with the king as his ambassadors down below, but we are being reminded one day we will be called home to suffer no more and to worship with him before him with our brethren, the angels forever. That's something great that we gain. You ought to walk out into the rest of the week saying, someday I don't have to leave. Someday the blessing of God won't be ending the worship service. Someday I will no longer see as in a glass dimly, but face to face. We gain a reminder of this when we worship by faith. And then what do we give? Assess your worship and the faith in our hearts as we worship by what we give. And, and you know, with give, maybe our thoughts go to style and approach and things like that. And, and that's not wrong to think about. But that's not what I want to start and focus with here. Two things uh, I I want to especially emphasize here at the end of this sermon that we give. That are essential, whatever other forms of things appear in our worship, that are essential for true faith-filled worship. Every year I try as a pastor to read a, a book on preaching to challenge myself and a book on worship to assess myself, but also our worship as a church. And um, sometimes I have my favorites I read over and over. But all of the good ones, in some way, emphasize two points. That what we give in worship needs to be sincere and informed. It might come with different words. I think J.C. Ryle uses the language of heart and conscience. Sincerity and informed. Sincere. Sometimes we can put a facade on sincere. We might look as enthusiastic as the angels. That's why we have to assess our hearts. Are we being sincere from true faith? You know, are we just singing songs that make us feel good or, or that we've always sung at Christmas? You, you know, you can always have sung it at Christmas and you can sincerely be singing it. <laughs> that, that's what we should want. <laughs> or we should want sing a new song, not just because it's new, but sincerely singing it. And it happens to be new, right? We, we have to assess, though, are we being sincere? Are we being sincere? And one aspect of sincere I'd like to challenge you with this morning, uh, recently, th- this year's book on worship I've been reading is H.B. Uh, Charles' short book on worship. And he uses an interesting word 
about sincerity in worship. He says, worship must be a choice. Worship must be a choice. I, I was thinking, especially of you, you children, who perhaps are uh, younger people, who are dragged to worship by mom and dad. Mom and dad can't make you worship. They can just make you be in this room with them. They might be able to, to make you sing and stand up or confess and say things, but they can't make you worship. There's a sincerity question here. Are you making the choice to worship truly by faith? Yes, I think you are. Uh, we all have to ask that of ourselves, don't we, as adults? And, and I would suggest we have to ask it every week. Because some weeks you come in and your heart's there and faith is on fire and then you have a really lousy week. And you need to ask yourself as you come into worship, am I just here because I know I'm supposed to be? It's where I am every 1030 on Sunday mornings. Uh, Or am I here like I was last week when I was on fire for God? Am I here now as a broken person, discouraged and struggling in my faith? Am I still here by choice because I long to worship God? Yeah, I think the sincerity question can nicely be asked as H.P. Charles Jr. asks, are you making the choice to worship God? And maybe halfway through a service, you should ask yourself, wait a second, is my heart sincerely here? Oh, I've been daydreaming about all the worries of last week. I've been thinking ahead of all of the joys of the week to come. I haven't really been worshiping. So I need to make a choice right here in the middle of the pastoral prayer while my mind's been wandering. I need to make a choice right now that I'm going to focus and worship God by praying along with the pastor and make a choice that I'm going to pay attention to the sermon and receive it if it is in accord with the word of God. I need to receive it as from God as an act of worship. And then I need to respond in song as an act of worship and not just lip service. These people, God says, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is your heart sincere in worship? That should flavor your lips. It should have a result on your lips. But it needs to start with a choice and a sincerity in your heart. But of course, it can't only be sincerely. That's the the key word of American evangelicalism today. Well, I was being sincere. And we can be sincerely wrong. Men and women were at times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament sincerely wrong. They came to the temple. God says through Malachi, I despise your sacrifice. Why would that be? We brought brought the sacrifice. We sincerely think that because we were here at the temple and we brought the sacrifice that you ought to accept us, God, 
And he says, no, your hearts are far from me. I want the sacrifice of obedience from your heart. So we need more than just sincere. We need sincerely accurate. (laughs) Sincere in bringing what God requires. That's the informed part. We need both, right? You can be informed and not be sincere. You can be informed and be stoic and emotionless about the gospel. You can be sincere, I'm sorry, you can be informed and be legalistic and not really understand the gospel. You can be informed and warm a seat in a room. You need informed and sincere, informed that is doing it in accordance with God and and his desire and have the emotions follow that in sincerity. And so we look to God in scripture. Now, wouldn't it be great if he just gave us a single book? The Old Testament saints, they had Leviticus. This is what the informed part of worship looks like. This detail, that detail, the other detail. Now you just have to bring the true faith of sincerity. Uh, And they still got it wrong. And, And sometimes I think we wish in the New Testament there was the New Testament Leviticus. This is the order of worship handed down from on high. These are the parts of worship. This is your posture in worship. This is how you decorate for worship. This is the style of worship. This is the, right, we we don't, get that handed down to us. It requires uh, sanctified, sanctified thought and continual sanctified uh, looking into whether, yes, this is what God is looking for. How can we improve it? Not just in terms of informed, but in terms of sincerity and how I bring it. But he does give us enough of informed, that there, there is something on which to form the basis. Acts 2.42, for example, tells us that there was preaching and fellowship and offerings and the sacraments and prayer in true informed worship. And that that, when done sincerely, should lead to a changed life throughout the week. So there are parts of scripture like that that put some things before us. Here the angels display informed worship in our text. Even though they don't fully understand the mystery of the gospel, what they do understand comes forth. And three things about it inform their worship. First and central to the worship of these angels, and we find this, in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation, and we ought to find it in our own worship, is that God's glory is first and foremost. Worship isn't about me. It's about God. H.B. Charles starts his book on worship by talking about Cain and Abel. And he tells us, at the beginning of his book, that the first lesson, Cain and Abel, on worship in Scripture teaches us that the ultimate priority of worship is to make sure 
that God is pleased. That God is pleased. That the glory goes to Him. That all is done for His pleasure in worship. But I think from the angels we also see two other things about biblical worship. Not just that God's glory is central, but it's central in the context of redemption. That He is to be glorified in worship, not generically. Oh, there's some God out there in the universe. Some creator, perhaps. But that this is an intimately known creator. That sinners are reconciled. And that is the ultimate cause we have for joy and worship. That we've been reconciled. Peace towards men on whom his favor rests. Does any non-Christian joining us in worship walk out of here saying, Wow, those people were worshiping God out of joy because his favor rests upon them in Christ. And of course, that means part of our challenge is the implied thing that the angels are implying. They, they imply the need for reconciliation, the need for peace. Who cares if someone with whom I already have peace says peace towards you? That, that's a glorious declaration when we know that we don't have peace with God right now. But we can. And so our worship ought to also say we are sinners. And we need God to make the terms of peace come about. Well, he did make those peace terms come about. And that's one reason why we've, the past couple years, tried to have every Sunday, not just one Sunday a month, confession of sin at the beginning of our worship and pardon at the beginning of our worship so that everything that flows after that should be our celebration that God in Christ has saved me. And he's continuing to speak to us through his word in worship. But underlying it all is the fact that he has saved sinners. The unbeliever hears us confess those things. Hears the pardon declared. And then watches us worship God. We pray. Both informed and sincerely. In our worship. So let's. Examine our hearts on those things. And from that basis of sincere and informed, then we can start examining how we do those things. But first, is our heart both seeking God's direction in worship and sincerely coming in faith so that we might sing forth glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest for In the Lamb, He has made peace by the blood of His cross. Glory to God in the highest. Let us join the angels in this thought. Let's pray.